Don't worry, it's just me. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Evie Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Platwoods Church. Uh, it's great to be gathered here in this space with you, but also a special welcome to those of you worshiping with us online today as we begin this new series. The year I turned 10, the Ramses the Great exhibit was touring the nation. Artifacts, never before seen in this hemisphere, left their Egyptian home and wowed children, adults, the avid enthusiasts, and the curious novices in cities across America. Dallas was their last stop. I remember distinctly my fascination with the imposing images on giant billboards throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, massive Egyptian figures, sarcophagi, greatness and gold and exotic grandeur coming to life in my suburban childhood that had no category for such things. I begged to go. I don't actually remember much of the exhibit. <laughs> I remember a really long line to get in at Dallas Fair Park. I remember the giant statue, the Colossus of Memphis, a 36-foot-tall monument to Ramses II, unearthed in 1820, but built to celebrate his victory over the Hittites at Kadesh in 1274 BCE. I also remember the t-shirt I got at the gift shop. It was black, with a striking sand-colored rendering of that regal and powerful face, Ramses, the fearsome and egotistical Pharaoh, whose building campaigns astound even modern moguls, a king divinely appointed by the Egyptian sun god Ra, maybe even divine himself, so the people believed. I loved that t-shirt. I was a super cool kid. <laughs> ancient Egypt captures modern imagination in a way that maybe other ancient civilizations don't quite. This culture and empire, so distant and different from anything we know, appeals to our curiosity, our sense of mystery and wonder. Think about all the Egypt permeating our pop culture of the 20th and 21st centuries. Cleopatra, the mummy, multiple times, death on the Nile, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, the Prince of Egypt, the Bengals hit. Walk like an Egyptian. Thought we should do that. Well, Walter, let's get this worked into the series somewhere. <laughs> Even the Cain Chronicles that my kids like to read in young adult literature. We could go on and on. Ancient Egypt is cool. Layer on top of that, then, our own sacred story, embedded or at least emerging in proximity to that same Egypt. At the heart of that story is a complicated unassuming, somewhat reluctant leader of a ragtag bunch of peasants. He was himself a product of that grandeur, that opulence and power, but rather than rising and claiming his own position as a rightful prince, he gathered up the hungry, angry people and marched right on out of magnificent ancient Egypt. Our prince of Egypt, our man of the month, our teacher and our guide for this series is, of course, Moses. Even if you've never set foot in a church until today, chances are you've probably at least vaguely heard of Moses. And if you're not familiar with him, that's totally fine, too. We're going to get to know him pretty well this month. 
Movies have been made about him, too. Books written, art created, thousands of sermons preached. He is a hero of the Jewish and Christian faiths. What is it about Moses that draws us back to him time and time again? I think Moses is compelling to us because he is clearly and honestly both sinner and saint. We see his faults and his foibles just as easily as his successes. He's also both reluctant and faithful. He doesn't really want to do most of the things God asks of him, but he does them anyway. That's a helpful and realistic model for many of us. And ultimately, Moses gives us powerful lessons in both life and leadership, because his is a story that has endured throughout the ages, even though the story isn't really about him. It's about freedom. Moses was the kind of person, the kind of leader that left a legacy that wasn't tied to him. It was tied to God. These qualities in Moses are compelling to me. I find lots of timeless truth for us to hold on to as we dive into his story together. So I'm going to encourage you this month to get familiar with the story yourself. You don't have to just sit here and listen to what I say. You can read it for yourself right there in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. That's where we find this story. So I'd like for you to commit to reading the book of Exodus this month, the whole thing, or listen to it if that's your your speed We have Bibles out in the lobby free for you if you don't have one and you need one. Exodus is 40 chapters long, so let's do the math. That's 10 a week throughout this series, two chapters a day on weekdays. If you want to keep it simple, you can do this. I know you can. Today we're beginning with the beginning, Moses' origin story. The rest of the series will be more thematic than chronological, but origin stories matter in literature, in movies, in art, in religious history, in our own lives. Where we come from and how we got here have a lot to do with the lives we lead. So it's important to take a journey inward and backward to find out where it all begins. Before Moses is even a twinkle in his father's eye, we need to recall what's been going on with God's people, the Israelites. Stepping back even further, back into the book of Genesis. Genesis ends, it comes right before Exodus, but it ends on a high note with Joseph, different character, and his 11 brothers having survived a famine. But in surviving the famine, they resettled then to Egypt. That's how the people of Israel got to Egypt in the first place. And Joseph had hit it off with the king there at the time and found favor as honored guests in the land. The whole family was treated well, living the high life, even as immigrants in a foreign land. And that went on for a couple of generations. But then here is where the book of Exodus begins, and it sets the scene for Moses' entrance. Eventually, Joseph, his brothers, and everyone in his generation died. But the Israelites were fertile and became populous. They multiplied and grew dramatically, filling the whole land. Now, a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Many biblical and historical scholars support the plausibility that this new king could have been Ramses the Great, the same one whose treasures regaled the memories of my childhood, even though the scriptures never do him the honor of assigning him a name. 
he, the new king, said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build storage cities named Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread, so much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. What began as promise and prosperity and preservation of the people of God, finding their flourishing in the land of Egypt, has quickly turned to suffering. It's a riches-to-rags kind of story. And life for the Israelites has turned grim. Tension is rising as the wedge between the haves and the have-nots drives deeper and the control draws tighter. And chapter 1 ends with the Pharaoh threatened enough by this growing and unhappy population that he issues this edict. Throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River. But you can let all the girls live. Smooth, Pharaoh. It's a great strategy for eliminating a people. Keep the ones who can bear the children. <laughs> Solid plan. <laughs> I guess he was known for his big ego, though, not his big brain. But for a story that's about to introduce a male protagonist, things aren't looking good. So along comes Moses into this hostile environment in very tense and troubled times. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. I want to pause here for just a moment for a quick Hebrew lesson. What was the basket made of? Reeds. And where did Moses' mom put the basket once it was sealed up? What part of the river? What was around? The reeds, right? The Hebrew word for reed is suf, S-U-F, suf. It occurs 25 times in the Bible, and all but one of those times is in reference to this story, suf, the Moses story, suf. So just tuck that word away in your brain for a moment. We're going to come back to it, suf. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her women servants walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, the souf, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed, yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. After the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I pulled him out of the water. 
This is quite the strange story, isn't it? A baby in a basket in a river, three women taking on various roles of advocate, nursemaid, and adoptive mother, all in defiance of a powerful king's decree. That baby ends up in the very household of that king who had categorically wanted him dead. But the result is that the Hebrew people's story of riches to rags seems to have suddenly turned around once again, at least for this particular water-born baby. A poor peasant baby is raised by his birth mother, but has his childhood and adolescent home in the palace of a pharaoh. Effectively, Moses is a boy with one foot in two vastly different worlds. Nowadays, there is a sociological term for kids like this. They're called third culture kids. This term attempts to describe the reality of kids who grow up in a culture that is not the one they are born into. My mom and her two brothers are third culture kids, all born here in the U.S., but they spent a decade of their childhood in Brazil as missionary kids. They learned the language, they ate the food, they navigated the cultural norms, they functioned as locals in Brazil. It was their home, but they weren't Brazilian. And then when they'd come home to the States, they knew they were home, but it also didn't feel like home. They didn't quite fit anywhere anymore. One writer describes third culture kids as citizens of everywhere and nowhere. And that's true of many people. Some of you even right here in this congregation have this experience, maybe as a missionary kid or as an expat kid or a military kid or a biracial kid. You were formed by two different cultures at the same time. So you can move fluidly between them, but also are never really sure where you belong. There is beauty in that kind of identity. There's also significant challenge. Moses is a third culture kid. And I imagine for much of his early life, he wrestled with his own sense of belonging and identity. And we see this come to bear very quickly in his young adult life. In the first two chapters of Exodus, we get zero information about Moses' childhood or adolescence. We can imagine a lot, try to fill in the gaps, but the text tells us nothing. The very next thing we get after he's pulled out of the Nile River is a violent scene out in the work camps. Just jumps from one verse to the next, like 15 years. One day after Moses had become an adult, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked around to make sure no one else was there and then he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. And Moses said to the one who had started the fight, why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? He replied, who made you a boss or a judge over us? You planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid when he realized they obviously know what I did. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses ran away from Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian. So Moses' conflicting identities have now caught up with him. We can imagine him a man with free time on his hands, clean bronze skin glimmering under the Egyptian sun but barely breaking a sweat as the fine fabrics draping his body flow in the slight breeze, new sandals 
with the Egyptian equivalent of the Nike swoosh adorn his soft, uncalloused feet. He sips his fresh fig juice through a reed straw, surveying the scene in the construction site next door. There's a brand new mud spa going in. But in the midst of all his comfort and privilege, something gnaws deep in the pit of his stomach. A Hebrew, a man who looks a lot more like him than his own siblings in the palace do, is taking a beating from an Egyptian man who sounds a lot more like his grandfather than his mother. Something inside of him snaps. A deep sense of injustice overpowers his heart, overrides his mind, and he fells the Egyptian abuser without batting an eye. And then realizing quickly that this was a catastrophic choice, he buries him in the sand. Moses has inherited both the blessings of the household in which he lives, but also the trauma of his people enslaved and suffering. He sits smack in the middle of the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots, and his conflicting identities had come out to spar. And his blood ran deeper than his household. Moses' Hebrew heritage was now lodged in place, and he knew where his loyalty lay. And that was suddenly dangerous for him. He gets the heck out of Dodge and flees to Midian, both to save his own neck, but also undoubtedly to do some real soul-searching and figure out who he is. He lands there in Midian as a fugitive, but quickly makes it his home. He lives there as an immigrant but he creates his own family, one that's defined neither as Egyptian nor Hebrew. Moses has found a place to simply be. He is far from his origin. He no longer has any visible obligation or purpose with the people and the places he's left behind. He has escaped. And it's worth noting that up until this point in the book of Exodus, God hasn't uttered a word. Speaking of God, just because God hasn't said anything doesn't mean God is not at work. What starts to become very clear in Moses' origin story is that while God did not orchestrate or design every piece of this strange and sometimes traumatic story, God does not waste a single part of it. Let me connect a few dots to show you what I mean. You remember the word for read? Who remembers it? Suf. Do you know where that word shows up next in the book of Exodus? There's a certain body of water in Moses' story, one that's most often referred to as the Red Sea, because that's the sea we actually know in that part of the world. It's the sea he so epically divides so the people can walk to freedom on dry land, but do you know what it's called in Hebrew? It is called yam, which is the word for sea. Yam suf. Not Red Sea. Read, see. Can you picture this baby set afloat in the Nile, his basket parting the reeds of the water as he gently drifts downstream, now standing, grown, hardened, and mature, knee-deep at the water's edge, staff in hand, the small, same tall reeds rising up behind and around him as the waters roil and ripple and atoms and waves inexplicably part. The reeds 
The tiny detail of the reeds are woven into his story and purpose. Back at the river, as an infant, Moses was given his name. Pharaoh's daughter gives it to him. She's Egyptian, but scripture tells us the Hebrew meaning of the name, drawn out. It's true, he was drawn out of the water, out of his home, out of his next home, and ultimately out of Egypt altogether. But Moses has another meaning, the Egyptian one. We find it often in the archaeological record in Egyptians' names, but it's not a full name by itself. It simply means son. So usually when we see it, it is connected to another name. There is Tutmos, son of Tut, Amos, Kamos. Mos by itself then begs the question, whose son is he? There's no other name attached. To whom does he belong? For whom does he speak? Moses grew up with a half name, a half identity. But what may have seemed like half a name to begin with clearly defines his purpose in the chapters to come when God draws him out of Midian and sends him back to Egypt, belonging to the God of Israel, speaking with that God's voice. A long time passed, and the Egyptian king died. The Israelites were still groaning because of their hard work. They cried out, and their cry to be rescued from the hard work rose up to God. God heard their cry of grief, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked at the Israelites, and God understood. Moses, the third culture kid, the man with Egyptian words flowing from his tongue and Hebrew blood coursing through his veins, who has never felt like he fit anywhere, is now the perfect, the only person to go where God is about to send him. The king who wanted to kill him is gone. The Israelites need a voice. What languages does Moses speak? And with what kind of accent? What socioeconomic class can he blend into? Who else does he know in the upper echelon of Egyptian society? What palace does he already know how to navigate? This piece of his conflicted and confused identity, the part he was probably trying to shed, makes him exactly the person to go back and do the work God needs done. He knows how to walk with a foot in both worlds. And one last dot to connect for you, Midian, the place he ran away to. Do you know where it is? We'll pull up a map here. Our Egyptian setting is way up there in the north, northern part near the Nile, of course, and then Midian is all the way over here, far right. It's across the Sinai Peninsula. A, that's a long way, but Moses made that trek alone. And B, what is all that space in between? What, look, what is the Sinai Peninsula? Looks like a lot of wilderness to me. In fact, it is. It's the wilderness where the Israelites sojourned for 40 years. With who? With Moses, who had already been across it and knew the lay of the land. 
His escape to Midian may have been personal the first time, but every step of that fearful run was beating the path for the day that he'd be leading plenty of other tired and frightened people. He already knew the way. I draw these connections, these direct lines from Moses' origin story, even the tiniest of details, to the larger story that we know to make the point that our God is the zero-waste God. Moses' whole story to this point matters. Even the parts he wanted to forget, to abandon, to hide, to bury, probably especially those parts. God didn't cause those moments of pain or trauma or confusion, but God is definitely not going to let them go to waste or to let Moses go to waste because of them. God uses them and him to bring about freedom. God's zero-waste lifestyle is no different with us. And every single one of us can look back toward our own origin stories and know which parts we'd like to escape. Maybe you have. Maybe you're in Midian right now, pretending like some mistake you made never happened. Maybe you've got stuff in your life that feels like an entirely wasted chapter, something you tried that didn't pan out, or made such a mess you wish you could just undo it. A complicated childhood that didn't fit the mold like your friends did. A year, a decade of addiction. Time you don't want to tell anyone about and feel like you'll never get back. A deep secret. Abuse. A terminated pregnancy. An estranged sibling or child. A divorce or being laid off multiple times even, seasons of life that made you feel simply worthless. There is much in our life that we would just as soon leave behind, pretend like it never happened, wish it never did. It cannot possibly be part of the story God is writing with our lives. Just edit those chapters right on out. But God wastes nothing. All our confusion, our mistakes, our faults, our formation goes into our story. It makes us who we are today and who we can be tomorrow. And when God calls us out of our fugitive space, of our Midian, when God is sending us with all our fear and uncertainty and trepidation about ourselves, God has equipped us exactly with our own origin story and no one else's. When that story is unleashed by God to meet the cries and the suffering of other people, do you know what happens? The waters part. The weight of hiding and of trying to breathe underwater, shame and wandering fall away. And a way to the other side becomes clear. Because someone else has been found in our story, in your story. And so we both are free. God wastes nothing. No part of you, no part of your story. It all matters to God, and God will turn it toward freedom. To close today, I want to invite you to do some homework. I literally never do this, so just humor me. 
This is not the right thing. I want you to take home one of the cards that we've prepared for you. If, you're, um, if you came in and got it, it looks, thank you, Pastor Justin, I appreciate it. It looks just like what we usually hand you. But on the back, it has six squares. If you didn't get one on the way in, uh, grab one on the way out. The hospitality volunteers will have it for you. And if you're online, you can do this yourself. Just take a paper, piece of paper and just draw a grid, two by three, six squares. This card is going to become six stories that shaped you. It's better if you sketch, if you draw, than if you write down with words, because drawing it makes you sit with your story a little bit longer. But spend some time returning to your origin story. And really, that can be anything from the moment you were born until whatever has occurred this morning, right up until this present moment. What are six moments, events, memories that have shaped you in big ways and small ways? That's your homework. And then put that in a place where you'll see it over the next several weeks. Let God work on you through it. Embrace those squares. If they are difficult or they seem mundane, especially if they do. Because you are the only one that has them. And God loves that about you. God wastes nothing in Moses' story to bring freedom to God's people. And God will waste nothing in yours. Let us pray. God, you are author, teller, and redeemer of our stories. Out of our uniqueness, our stumbling, our reluctance, and our passion, you weave lives that can deeply connect to those around us. Give us courage to be honest with you, with ourselves, with others, trusting that what seems useless to us in our own story is wrapped up and recreated by you. Nothing is lost. Nothing is wasted. In the name of the one who draws us out. Amen.